Welcome to Human Circus. In the fall of 1171, Salah ad-Din sat as Sultan in Egypt. The young Fatimid Caliph al-Adid was dead, a situation he seemed to view with some ambivalence. If I had known he was going to die, he remarked to his advisor, I would not have crushed him by removing his name from the sermon. If he had known he would have kept his name in the sermon, al-Qadi al-Fadil replied, he would not have died. However he felt about the path taken, Salah ad-Din now took charge of Egypt, seeing off challenges from without, from the kingdom of Jerusalem and the Byzantine Empire, and from within, likely forestalling much rebellion by show of force, stopping others by its application, or by the efficacy of his informants. Members of the Fatimid dynasty lived still, and they had their supporters, as a political power with more than two centuries of history, and as a religious one that claimed descent from Ali himself, the first Shia Imam, cousin of the Prophet Muhammad, and his first male follower. Displacing that dynasty was no small matter, and Hafiz Ishmailis continued to look to Aladid's captive son as Imam, and others after. Some of these supporters would be involved in conspiracies that drew in a wide variety of plotters, assassins, and disgruntled officials. But Salah ad-Din would not succumb to such internal opposition, would not lose his hold on Egypt, now that he had it. He had installed his family in positions of power, installed Sunni institutions where there had been Shia ones, and, though he remained in the vizier's palace for now, he started to stretch his legs a little. There was an expedition which was sent out to Tunisia, another to Libya, a brother who was proving a financial burden in Egypt, who went to Yemen. No longer was Salah ad-Din a man with three masters, two of them competing caliphs. And after taking power, he did as anyone would. He minted new coins, on one side, the name of the Abbasid Caliph in Baghdad, and on the other, his own as Sultan in Egypt. In time, he would come to be even more than that. Hello and welcome. My name is Devin, and this is Human Circus Journeys in the Medieval World, the podcast where I focus on medieval travelers, the history they were part of, and the way they illuminate an interconnected medieval world. Just a quick note before we start, that I am on Patreon, and you can find me there at patreon.com forward slash human circus, or from my website, which is humancircuspodcast.com. Follow-up note, instead of purchasing an indeterminate but small and unsatisfying number of avocados a month, you could be supporting that Patreon, which will always be at just the right stage of gently yielding and firmness. Final note, though all contributions are hugely appreciated, if you do so at the $5 level, you can listen to this episode ad-free and with extra special bonus content on the end. And now, let's get back to the story. The story of Salah ad-Din, part two. Last episode, I may have left you wondering what made the Salah ad-Din character so special. What kind of great leader, conqueror, and unifier was this, you may well have asked. 
He'd followed, perhaps unwillingly, as his uncle had dealt with the difficult business of Fatibid Egypt. A moderately successful tagalong, you might say. He'd been at the right place, at the right time, to be chosen as vizier. Maybe as a compromise candidate. Maybe even, by some accounts, the weakest candidate. And then, he'd managed to avoid capsizing the boat just long enough to get the nod from Nuradin and put the final boot in the Fatimid Caliphate. What was so fantastic about that? Today, we start to find out. Leaving aside any egregious downplaying of his early accomplishments that I might have just committed, the best of Salah ad-Din was still to come. It is not for having Egypt flutter down into his lap that he is remembered most. It's for what came after, and that after can broadly be seen as defined by victories of a sort, one against three imposing adversaries, against Zengids, assassins, and crusaders. Today, I aim to get to the first two, and I'll begin with that first victory. It was one for which he would initially not need to strike a blow, but for which many, many more would eventually be required. Salah ad-Din's relationship with Nur ad-Din was not perfect. Yes, they'd both done what the other had asked, broadly speaking. Salah ad-Din had arranged for the Abbasid Caliph to be named in the sermon, as Nur ad-Din had directed. And Nur ad-Din had arranged for the Sultan's family members to join him, as Salah ad-Din had requested. However, this did not mean that the new Egyptian Sultan was quite doing all that was desired of him. After taking power, Salah ad-Din had sent a large lump sum back to Syria. But of all the wealth in Egypt, Nur ad-Din didn't have in mind just a single gift, no matter how generous. He wanted what everyone wants, a reliable, repeating income source, one that he could make plans around, not a one-time payment. And what he wanted, he looked for, much like how a government would look for missing funds now. He sent in the auditors, and Salah ad-Din opened his books, showing how Egypt wasn't just a money-making machine. It was an expensive ship to run, and much as you, your boss, or any large business concern might react to being audited, Salah ad-Din was not pleased. Knife cuts and needle pricks, he called it, and who could hold it against him? He was out there trying to govern Egypt, and all he was getting from Syria was the demand for more money. A country like this cannot be run except with a large amount of money, he pointed out. The troops had their expenses, and the great men of state their accustomed luxuries. His father, not quite yet dead by horsefall, was said to have advised his son to be tactful, not to make any unpleasant noises, but also not to let Noradin have a scrap of sugarcane or a single gold coin. Tensions were building. And no down payment, no matter how substantial, was going to fix that. For now, though, Nur ad-Din had other things to worry about, closer to home. He was in amongst the territorial confusion of the Byzantine Empire, Northern Crusader states, Seljuk Sultanate, and Lesser Armenia. And he was marching north to deal with disputes in that direction. But that would not hold his attention for long. He had not forgotten about Egypt, and increasingly, he may have been looking to Salah ad-Din with suspicion. Did the Sultan's lack of enthusiasm for raiding the Crusader states result from a lack of desire to remove that barrier between himself and his supposed ally and lord in Syria? The contemporary historian Ibn al-Athir certainly thought so, 
and he also had an Ayyubid family council meeting, taking place specifically to consider the threat of Nur ad-Din. Salah ad-Din moved his pieces into place, gathering his men and means outside Cairo. And in the spring of 1174, Nur ad-Din called in troops from Mosul, Diyar Bakr, and Al Jazeera. His man in Egypt was on his way back, bringing his report on the Egyptian audit and events at least seemed to be moving towards open conflict. But that report never reached Nur ad-Din, and his conflict with Salah ad-Din never quite reached open warfare, because on the 6th of May he received, quote, a command from God that he could not disobey. Nur ad-Din, outplaying Polo, went into a sudden rage and some kind of fit. He was brought back to the citadel at Damascus, and fell immediately and terribly ill. Alethir, who was among the doctors called to his side, described finding him in a small room on the verge of death. They advised that he be moved into a larger, well-lit space. They advised bleeding, but he only replied, scarcely able to make himself heard, that you did not bleed, a man of sixty. The doctors made other attempts, but they did him no good, and he grew worse, and he died. As Sunni historian Abu Shema would write of him in the next century, he took the lead in everything that was good about his age. He re-established order everywhere. In the lands he conquered, he found the resources necessary to continue holy war, so that he made it easy for his successors to continue the same course. In war, he distinguished himself by his firmness, by his use of the bow, and by the vigor of his swordsmanship. His script was fine. He took pleasure in reading religious books and followed the traditions of the prophet. Passionate in his determination to do good, he was restrained in the pleasures of the table and the harem, moderate in spending, and simple in his tastes. William of Tyre wrote that he was the greatest persecutor of the Christian name and faith, but also a just ruler, astute and far-sighted and according to the traditions of his people, a religious man. Nur ad-Din had fought to unite the region against crusader incursions, like his father had fought with reasonable success against the crusader states themselves, winning many victories. But like his father, he was now dead, and unlike his father, had left only an 11-year-old boy to continue his line. Syria was vulnerable. And if all went well, Salah ad-Din might soon be returning home in strength. However, he was not alone in having an eye on Nur ad-Din's seat of power. If the old man was dead, the Zengid line was not. There was that son to be considered, his eunuch regent Gemushtagin, various clusters of Nur ad-Din's foremost officials and emirs, and there were two nephews as well, who, had they been able to cooperate, would have been a real threat. There was the possibility that someone else, King Amalric of Jerusalem, say, might take advantage. But then, after he had attempted to nibble at the edges of his old enemy's territory, dysentery would take him, and there was going to be a period of regency before his son would come of age. Salah ad-Din would have a real shot at Syria, but that didn't necessarily mean he needed to take it. While he would express his sadness for Nur ad-Din's death, in a letter to the man's son, calling it an earthquake shock, the loss to Islam of its Alexander. The new circumstances brought him a kind of freedom, 
an independence that he'd lacked before. No one held anything over his head now. If he desired it, he had his separation from Syria. He could be who he wanted to be. Perhaps a new Fatimid emperor in Egypt. Perhaps a new Nuruddin stretching out from Syria in holy war. His future was open, so he could wait. And that meant that he was still in Egypt when William II of Sicily's ill-conceived Norman invasion washed up on his shores. The assault was intended to be a co-production with Amalric's people, but there was so much the Norman king didn't know. He did not know that Amalric was dead, that the Byzantine emperor, not a friend of William's, had sent word of warning to Salah ad-Din, or that when he landed at Alexandria, word would reach Salah ad-Din by pigeon in a matter of hours. When the news arrived, possibly false, of Salah ad-Din's imminent arrival in force only three days later, the Normans, already having suffered successful sallies from the walls that had burned their mangonels, were driven from the shore. William had accomplished little, save for allowing Salah ad-Din to establish himself as defender of Islam in the absence of the Zengid lord. Salah ad-Din waited still. He lingered. He mustered forces and moved to intervene against a crusader threat to Syria, then halted as that threat quickly subsided. Things hung on a fine balance. There'd been somewhat worried letters from and around Syria, indications that while some emirs were in favor of arresting any Salah ad-Din supporters on site and keeping Syria Salah ad-Din free, other leading figures opted for a friendlier approach, if one founded on similar concerns. Let us not remove him from amongst us, wrote the Qadi of Damascus of Salah ad-Din or else he may remove himself from our allegiance. He is stronger than we are. In the end, Salah ad-Din would be invited to Damascus by its governor. The man had previously rebuked Salah ad-Din in writing for his obvious ambitions, his unsightly designs on the house of the one who established him, which did not befit his good character. But something had changed. Perhaps the intrigues, which had already toppled one prominent and powerful family, alarmed the governor. Perhaps it was the prospect of continuing to preserve his city within the strife of a divided Syria. By late October 1174, Salah ad-Din had made the leap. He'd move quickly when the decision was made, perhaps bringing as few as 700 horsemen. He'd wanted to be mobile and fast, and he was certain that support would find him. For what he lacked in force with this expedition, he made up for in money. The wealth of Egypt would be spent in conquering Syria. Their coins, and soon they hoped their success, would supply their army. Painting a slightly more idealistic picture, Salah ad-Din said that he and his men dawned on the people like light in the darkness. The people rushed to him in joy at the coming of his rule. Salah ad-Din was careful to enter Damascus not as a conqueror, but as a protector, a savior. He began with prayer in the old Umayyad mosque, returned to his father's old house, spread around the wealth he had brought with him, and did away with a particularly unpopular tax. He claimed that he had come to rescue the city from those who had held back from holy war, to unify Islam, to seat the cause of young al-Salih, the Zengid boy whose rule he acknowledged. However, this posturing was not accepted by all, and Damascus was not all of Syria. 
Accusations poured in of treachery and of naked self-enrichment. An embassy from Aleppo arrived, and its leader, who had been with Salah ad-Din as part of Shirku's third venture, is said to have brandished his sword and proclaimed, Those swords that gave you the kingdom of Egypt will drive you back to it. Still, if he had not entirely won over its people, its emirs, officers, and governors, Salah ad-Din now had a foothold in Syria. And as we'll see, he would make good use of it. But first, a quick break. After occupying Damascus, Salah ad-Din did not sit still. He went out on tour, moving quickly. He wasn't looking to remain isolated or for grinding siege victories. He was looking for more support, for quick capitulations and comings over to his side from the cities and fortresses of Syria. Only 40 days after entering Damascus, on December 8th, he was outside Homs, where he was joined by one of Noradin's foremost commanders, and on the 10th, having not reached terms, he was capturing the town, if not the citadel, and moving on to Hamah. At each step, he sought to justify his actions, writing of his full effort to achieve peaceful victory, and his honest intention not to snatch up a kingdom for himself, but rather to set up the standard of holy war. He also emphasized with each new acquisition that he was intervening to halt unlawful and immoral practices. He was, at least in his own depiction, unifying and purifying. The surrender of Hama having been arranged, it was on to Aleppo, one of two remaining Zengid capitals, and home to Doradin's son. Saladin wrote home to his nephew that he hoped that God, exalted be he, would cause things to proceed peacefully without the need of war. But soon he wrote again, he had been acting with restraint, tried to soothe the explosion of outright war, and had been welcomed happily by some soldiers and citizens. But he was not yet inside, and he saw no immediate possibility for easy entry. Here he faced a city where citizens and garrison alike were hostile to him, where a tearful speech on the part of Al-Sali begging their protection had strengthened their resolve. Their sorties beyond the walls disrupted the siege, and there was a much more serious threat too. There were assassins, as in assassins with a capital A. It had been a fairly grim time outside the city, what with the cold winter wind and rains, the climate more than a body could bear, the forays of the city's hardened defenders. And then 13 men with knives had entered the camp and attacked during the communal meal. Gumushtagin, the regent, had looked out to the besieging army at his walls and decided to address the problem at the top. What use were clean hands if he was to lose his head? or his power. He turned to an unlikely ally for help, his message reaching Rashid Adin Sanan in the mountains west of Hama, perhaps arriving by carrier pigeon at one of his network of castles and strongholds. Rashid Adin Sanan was the leader of the Syrian Nazari Ismailis, or, as he was sometimes called in Latin sources, the old man of the mountain, and those sources paint a colorful picture if not necessarily an accurate one. Benjamin of Tudela, 
traveling through the area in the 1160s and early 70s, had this to say. Under Mount Lebanon reside the people called assassins, who do not believe in the tenets of Islam, but in those of one whom they consider like unto the Prophet. They fulfill whatever he commands them, whether it be a matter of life or death. He goes by the name of Sheikh al-Hashishin, or the old man. The assassins are faithful to one another by the command of the old man, and make themselves the dread of everyone, because their devotion leads them gladly to risk their lives and to kill even kings, when commanded. William of Tyre, familiar enough through their negotiations with King Elmerick, wrote of them also, saying, Their subjection and obedience to the old man is such that they regard nothing as too harsh or difficult, and eagerly undertake even the most dangerous tasks at his command. For instance, if there happens to be a prince who has incurred the hatred or distrust of this people, their leader places a dagger in the hand of one or several of his followers. Those chosen hasten away at once, regardless of the consequences of the deed or the probability of personal escape. Zealously, they labor for as long as may be necessary, until at last the favorable chance comes which enables them to carry out the mandate of their lord. Seljuk viziers, Syrian emirs, Turkic governors, two Abbasid caliphs, the Count of Tripoli, and in not too many years, Conrad of Montferrat, who would essentially be king of Jerusalem, they would all fall to the followers of this man, this figure of myth and legend, who shows every indication of cultivating and manipulating this image. And just as a quick aside, this episode is not the story of Sanan or the Nizari Ishmailis, but I do happen to know that as I record this, the excellent Dig History podcast is about to release an episode on that very topic, and they're always recommended listening. Anyways, back to the story. When Gamushtagin had approached Sinan, he'd found him more than willing to cooperate. In Salah ad-Din, Sinan saw the man who had brought an end to the Shia Fatimid Caliphate, who had brought the hated name of the Abbasid Caliph into Cairo's Friday prayers, and who was a threat to unify the region under Sunni Islam. So his thirteen men went in. They got quite close to Saladin, and but for the watchful Kumartagin, lord of a fortress in western Syria, they might have succeeded. As it was, he recognized them. What has brought you here, he shouted as they approached, and what business have you come? Having challenged them, he quickly died in the fighting that followed, but he had raised the alarm. At least one of the assassins actually reached Saladin himself before being beheaded by one of his emirs, but close as it had come, the attempt had failed. Saladin wrote to his brother Shah in Egypt with the news, and with a warning. The knives have been distributed, he told him, and the money spread round. He should be on his guard at all times, and only trust men whose beliefs he knew for certain. And he was right to be cautious. It was not his last time crossing with the people of Rashad Adin Sanan. The enemies of Salah ad-Din had evidently decided to exhaust every possible avenue to solve the problem. They'd looked to the Nazari Ishmailis, and they'd even reached out to Raymond of Tripoli for assistance, offering money and returned hostages. But this only opened up a way for Salah ad-Din to leave Aleppo gracefully, to put aside that faltering siege and to again declare himself a savior of Islam for seeing off the resultant crusader threat. 
All in all, things were well for Salah Adin, even if he hadn't quite managed to pry open Aleppo yet, hadn't yet dealt with the surviving Zengids. He would have dealings with those Zengid princes in the months to come. There'd be standoffs and swaps, negotiations in which one fortress or another was given up, talk of hostages exchanged, and posturing as to just who could claim to being Noradin's son's protector, who was forging agreements with the Crusader state leadership, who was bitterly complaining in letters to the Caliph in Baghdad about it. And then, in the spring of 1175, on April 13th, Salah Din closed with forces of his Zengid adversaries, not behind walls, but out in the open this time. And however the battle played out, it played out extremely quickly. There is talk that the matter was settled beforehand, by negotiations, bribery, or betrayal. And maybe that was true. Or maybe the Ayyubid forces were simply superior, or benefited from distrust among their opponents, between the soldiers from Aleppo and those from Mosul. Salah Adin, at the center of the line, proudly spoke of having shattered the enemy like glass and without loss to his side. In keeping with future generosity, he gave orders that the wounded and captured were to be released rather than killed or sold. These men who fought against him today might well be lining up on his side in the future, for that was how it went. A man serving in a garrison for one master could just as easily soon be serving another were his fortress to change hands. In the aftermath of the April 13th victory, which, conclusive as it had been in itself, had not in fact brought regional dominance or caused Aleppo to open its gates, Salah Din wrote to Baghdad asking for letters of investiture covering Egypt, Yemen, the Maghreb, and Syria, including, quote, all the lands contained in the Zengid state, together with everything that may be conquered for the Abbasid cause, with our swords and our armies. He wanted the nod of approval for what he had, and also what he had yet to win. But when the caliphal envoy arrived with robes of honor and the requested paperwork, he got only the first part, and also a pointed reminder that he really ought to be attacking Jerusalem and protecting Egypt. The caliph, while not taking sides, seemed to be pointing him away from Syria, while Salah Adin, in his reply, pointed the finger back at the Lord of Mosul that he had wronged the caliph's servant and used his tongue and his pen against him. And he had words for the treachery of Aleppo, too. Salah Adin would not be leaving Syria to pursue more southern interests just yet. In fact, he settled into Damascus for about a year, weathering the droughts that had followed the winter and strengthening his position, or at least trying to hold it all together. In an otherwise optimistic letter back to Egypt, there was an order that taxes be collected and the money sent on. If it didn't come immediately, then, quote, years will feign deafness, although tongues have answered the summons, and hosts will disperse. Soon after this, and despite an agreement of peace, in early 1176, soldiers came from Mosul again, this time with Nur ad-Din's nephew Saif among them. And again, Salah ad-Din moved out to meet them, and again he won. Again, he had been victorious in open battle, and again, he had refrained from bloodily pressing his advantage, had refrained from giving up his ability to claim the moral advantage. Officers were well-treated and released. What he did do, though, was plunder his enemy's camp, and among other forms of treasure, 
capture Saif's collection of birds, parrots, nightingales, and doves included, and have them return to Saif with a message. Tell him to go back to playing with these birds, for they are safe and will not bring him into dangerous situations. The losers of the battle were sent naked, barefoot, and impoverished, blaming one another for oath-breaking, off to Aleppo. And around that city, Salah ad-Din set about knocking down the fortifications that surrounded the strong point. For example, the castle of Azaz in May 1176, where Rashid ad-Din Sinan's men found him once more. This time, there were four of them, and they got closer than the thirteen had. Pretending to be bodyguards, they got close enough that Salah ad-Din's armor was pierced, and his face cut before they were cut down. They got close enough that one threw him to the ground and died wrestling over control of the knife in his hand. They got close enough that from then on he had a stockade put up around his tent, that he would not speak to people he didn't know, and that when he rode, if he saw anyone he didn't recognize, he'd order them removed from his party immediately. If the assassins weren't actually assassinating him, then they were certainly starting to affect him. His attackers had gotten close enough that after a new round of siege warfare did not cause Aleppo to crack, he turned his attention squarely upon them. They may have appeared like ghosts in his camp, but they were flesh and blood. Their fortresses were stone. They could be besieged, starved, and slain. Or so it was to be hoped. However, after as little as six days of sustained assault upon their castle of Masyaf, Salah ad-Din abandoned the effort. What had happened? Was he overawed by the impregnable fortress of the legendary assassins, or the victim of some manner of sorcery on their part? There are stories of a glowing light descending from the castle and into his tent, of his waking with a cry to find a figure, identified as Rashid Adin Sanan himself, slipping from his tent and leaving behind a poisoned dagger and a written death threat. But his attackers had nearly gotten to him before without resorting to such magics. And there's no reason to think that on this, their third attempt, they would have held back from killing him in his sleep. More believable are reports that there were threats made against his uncle, that further death threats were made against his emirs and all his family if he would not negotiate, and that news had come in from the south that Amalric's successor, Baldwin the leper, was taking advantage of the situation to come raiding within ten kilometers of Damascus. There was no great mystery, no magical masters of murder, needed for Salah ad-Din to turn away from Masyaf. He halted briefly in Damascus, marrying Nur ad-Din's widow and joining his sister with her brother, solidifying his connection to the Zengid family and its legacy, and then he returned to Egypt. After all that money spent, that struggle and diplomatic maneuvering and open combat, he had thus far only been partially successful in uniting Egypt and Syria, was no closer to making Aleppo his own, and had nothing at all to show for the caliph's wishes that he pushed the crusaders out of Jerusalem and the coastal cities. Some of that at least would come in time, but first, Salah ad-Din would be taking a break in Egypt, and we will be taking a much briefer break here.
As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Of course, Salah Adin's break in Egypt was not really a break. He was the founder of a dynasty, not the sort of late dynasty sultan prone to immersing himself in overindulgence. He was busy with rebuilding the Egyptian navy and arranging envoys to Genoa to secure the required materials, with starting work on an enormous wall to enclose Fustat in Cairo, with reinforcing the fortifications of its other Egyptian cities, and with less military matters also, a college in Alexandria, questions of internal trade, the lifting of a pilgrim's toll covering travel on the Red Sea, and corresponding replacement payments to Mecca to make up the loss, a move of significant PR value. Meanwhile, his enemies also were not resting. The rulers of Aleppo had formed agreements with the Crusader states that involved the release of prisoners including a man named Reynald de Chatillon, who would be Saladin's fierce adversary in years to come. And there were rumors that those crusader states might again be considering an attack on Egypt, maybe with the assistance of a Sicilian fleet, a Byzantine one, or a count from Flanders, or that they might instead move against Assyrian holdings. Into the face of these threats, in November of 1177, Salah ad-Din again prepared to advance. If his enemies in the kingdom of Jerusalem went north, he reasoned, the way would be open to him. If they remained or came south towards Egypt, then the lance points would be in their breasts. But as it happened, those lance points would not be in the breasts he had hoped for. At first, the path seemed clear for victory. His opponent, Baldwin the leper, was undermanned for the moment, a company of his knights being away on campaign, and Salah ad-Din certainly had the numbers on his side as he swept towards Ascalon. Baldwin briefly formed up against him, but correctly assessing the strength disparity or heeding those who did, he elected not to fight and fell back behind the walls. And this too was just fine for Salah ad-Din. Rather than remain and lay siege, his troops turned to plundering the countryside. It was a perfectly sensible thing to do if Baldwin would only hold up his end and cling to Ascalon. But that was not what Baldwin would be doing. Together with the aforementioned Reynald de Chatillon and the Grand Master of Gaza with his Templars, who had answered Baldwin's call for aid, he came out from behind those walls and he went hunting. It's not clear exactly where he found Salah ad-Din, but it is clear that his coming was unexpected. There was time for trumpets to be sounded, a beating of drums, a desperate effort to muster and to arm. Much of the Egyptian cavalry 
was either scattered or tangled with the baggage in the midst of a river crossing. Some of those at hand were without immediate arms or armor, their mounts exhausted, and they were hemmed in on one side by a river. They may still have outnumbered their enemy, and they did seem to have had their moments in the battle, just not enough to save them. As things fell apart, Salah ad-Din himself almost fell victim to a trio of horsemen. His bodyguards and their yellow silks and armor were required to rush him away as the enemy tore into their baggage and then gave chase. Until nightfall, conquerors pursued the conquered, and if Baldwin had gone all in on the pursuit, who knows what kind of calamitous damage he may have inflicted. As it was, he fell back to Ascalon, not taking part in the chase, and he and his men had done quite enough. Salah ad-Din's army was dispersed, much of its provisions taken, its retreat marked by days of severe rain and cold, and after the rain came its total absence as they entered the desert, much of the force still in confusion, many of their horses collapsing, dead. William of Tyre wrote that it could truly be believed that even the elements had conspired against the enemy. It was only by the Alphadil-hired Bedouin guides that they made it through as they did. But some were betrayed by those same guides and captured, and others surrendered themselves rather than die in the desert for lack of food or water. In the second week of December, Salah ad-Din and those who had made it back with him approached Cairo. Couriers and pigeons spread out ahead of him, putting the best possible face on the loss. But Ahmad al-Din knew the truth behind the happy words those messengers brought. I rode out to listen to what they had to say, he wrote, and to hear how God had given victory to the Muslims. But I heard them saying, Good news! The Sultan and his family are safe and are arriving with spoils. They would not be giving good news of his safety unless there had been a defeat. Salah ad-Din spared no effort in redeeming the event, going furthest in his letter to the Caliph's vizier that if 100 Muslims were martyred, Yet thousands of unbelievers were killed. The people said it was a defeat, but through the blessing of the caliphate, it was a victory. Elsewhere, he wrote of God leading them through the waterless desert with no losses of consequence. However, the rise of Salah ad-Din had been suddenly, sharply halted, and the troubles were not limited to Egypt. Syria, which he had for now been prevented from intervening in, was in utter chaos. His uncle Shahab Adin was dead in Hama, while droughts and the inattentions of his brother had done nothing good for the situation in Damascus. Turan Shah, who is said to have plunged in the sea of his own pleasures, had overseen a general weakening, and then paid the Crusader states off in money and ill-afforded grain to protect that weakness. If there was one potential bright spot in the region for Salah Adin, it was that his rivals in Aleppo were in no position of great strength either. A struggle had been playing out there between Al-Salih's vizier and his regent, Gemushtagin, a struggle in which the vizier had been experiencing some success, right up until the point he was killed by assassins. And Gemushtagin did not get to relish his victory for long, because he was in turn blamed for the killing, arrested, tortured to death, and left hanging by his heels from the walls. Naturally, all of this was viewed with some interest from the Crusader states. It invited a new round of raids led by the Count of Flanders and Raymond of Tripoli, on Hama and then onto the castle of Harim, where the besiegers settled in for a bit. Their proximity to Antioch 
proving something of a double-edged sword. Supplies were brought up easily enough, but as William put it, the attackers were given to dissoluteness and paid more attention to dice and other harmful pleasures than to military discipline. They were going to Antioch for supplies, but more often for baths, feasts, drunkenness, and other lubricious pleasures. Meanwhile, the Count of Flanders regularly made noises about heading home, and so the siege dragged on and into early 1178. In Egypt, Salah ad-Din was aware of all of this. It was a time of rebuilding, rearming, and replacing mounts, a time of keeping up the constant work of caliph buttering. He could not afford to let up on what was essentially an enormous political campaign. He was already a lord, a sultan of Egypt, and much of Syria, but he was running for a higher office than that. He could not afford to stay away from Syria, not for his reputation as the champion of Islam, not for his reputation as a competent ruler who was able to hold his own borders. So back to Syria he went. As you might be picking up by now, the story of Salah ad-Din is not one of unremitting successes, a parade of victories built upon some childhood story of hardship and setbacks. Here he was, back in Damascus, appalled at his brother's debt, hindered by the Nile's stubborn refusal to flood, troubled by disagreements over the governance of Baalbek, at intermittent war with his competing co-religionists, ever promising to carry the holy war against the crusader states, and occasionally actually skirmishing with their fighters or sending his Egyptian fleet against their coast. In early 1179, he's dealing with a Seljuk sultan to the north. In August, He's sapping the walls and storming the castle at Jacob's Ford, built less than a year earlier, and despite his deserved reputation for generosity and clemency, massacring many of its defenders. He's worrying about his finances, the stream of money bleeding out of Yemen, and always, he's dealing with the Bedouin, and with food, or more specifically, the wheat and barley sown in the Syrian winter, and ready in spring. The problem was that this harvest drew Bedouin each year from the deserts to the east, and what with the shortages, Salah ad-Din did not want them consuming the grains. But he also did not want to make them angry. He might need them soon enough, and certainly didn't want to be fighting these people who Al-Fadil termed an enemy within the ribs, any more than necessary. They were already seen as serving the aims of his opponents, as combatants, guides, or spies, rather more than he'd like already were prone to piracy on the rivers, brigandry everywhere else. The solution was, of course, to send them into other lands, to direct them on raids towards Beirut and Sidon, let them eat others' grain. Unsupported, they were not quite strong enough to push far into those territories, but the idea was sound enough. Meanwhile, in Baghdad, the Abbasid Caliph died, and so did his vizier, Murder, naturally suspected, and the latter's body dragged about and cut to pieces by a street mob. In Alexandria, that troublesome older brother, Turan Shah, died too, though likely from intestinal problems. He'd been transferred from Damascus, but showed no signs of any lifestyle adjustments. Was remembered kindly by the poets to whom he had been so generous. Was otherwise remembered for the enormous debt he had left behind. In Constantinople, Emperor Manuel was also nearing the end, his empire ripped apart by infighting, intrigue, and expensive military defeat at the hands of the Seljuks. And Baldwin IV of Jerusalem, 
the leper. His leprosy was worsening, and he'd suffered some close calls, too. Cut out cattle raiding in Salah Adin's territory, unhorsed, and nearly captured with losses to his personal guard. Maybe that was why he was willing to go to Salah Adin in the spring of 1180, looking for a truce. And Salah Adin, who was rarely without several balls in the air and was besides running short on money, agreed, though his followers would try to put the agreement in a better light than that. It was, after all, not the first time he'd signed on to this sort of thing, negotiated a peace or something else. He'd attempted to negotiate the outright purchase of the Jacobsford Castle, rather than bother with siege warfare, before the price crept too high and talks broke down, before he wound up writing to Baghdad that he pulled apart its foundation with his own hands. Again and again, he'd shown willingness to engage in truce or treaty with people that he would then accuse his rivals in Syria of dealing with in much the same way. He'd write to the caliph and complain that this or that leader of Mosul or Aleppo was in cooperation with assassins or crusaders, and he'd protest his own purity in the matter, assure Baghdad that his own holy war with the enemy was well in hand, or at least well on the way. But here he was again, putting that particular war decidedly on the back burner, opting for peace with that enemy instead. In the background of Salah ad-Din's claim in Syria was always the nagging reality that al-Salih, the son of Nur ad-Din, existed. It was all very well for now. He'd positioned himself nicely through familial connections to be able to make a claim to Zengid lineage. He could always continue to posture as the true protector of that lineage, and indeed of al-Salih himself, over and against all those who were actually around al-Salih in Aleppo. But if this al-Salih grew up, and he had grown up, he was now 19 years old, and if he had children himself, well then, eventually there may well be a claim made on Salah ad-Din's possessions in Syria. And when that happened, he might be in an awkward spot to justify his continuing to hold them. So it was that Salah ad-Din took a distinct interest in the development of this young man, in the loyalty he had accrued in Aleppo, the piety he had displayed, refusing to take wine even during illness. And then, his final illness, which took hold on November 18th, 1181. By December the 4th, Al-Salih Ismail al-Malik was dead. And what a strange short life it had been. The prisoner in the palace, surrounded since his father had died when he was 11, by people fanatically loyal to his person and promise as Nur ad-Din's son. But also by those who played for power in his orbit, who claimed to speak for his best interests while seeking only to further their own. As expected, Salah ad-Din did not sit still at these developments. He had heard word of the early days of sickness, and arranged for a relay of couriers and carrier pigeons. He'd wanted to be prepared to block others' access to Aleppo, and leap into action as soon as the news went out. Unfortunately for him, even as he set out his plans, a key piece of them was away in the desert, dealing with that troublesome Reynald de Chatillon, and there was nothing that could be done to prevent Nur ad-Din's nephew, Yiz al-Din Masoud of Mosul, crossing the Euphrates and entering Aleppo. Salah ad-Din, not yet realizing that he had already lost his opportunity, wrote to one of his emirs with lands just west of Aleppo, saying, quote, 
The emir knows of the recent death of the Lord of Aleppo, which is our territory. In quest of it, we shall not turn aside our reins, as it is covered by the diploma of investiture given us by the commander of the faithful. And we only left it with Al-Sali, after administering its territories and taking its castles and fortresses, in order to respect the rights of his father. We have kept faith with the dead. But now the face of truth is clear for us. The emir is asked to help. Let him come himself with his men. Let him act as a man acts in his own interest. When he learned it was too late, he didn't give up on Aleppo. He continued his lobbying campaign with Baghdad, pressing his points that the lands granted him by the previous caliph should be considered to include Aleppo, that he had only just then been prevented from taking it because his forces had been away elsewhere, defending the very gateway to Medina against the very people he accused the Mosulis of conspiring with, and that, quite aside from any issues of right and wrong, this dividing of Syria could only result in weakness and prevent the prosecution of holy war. And as to that last part, it was hard to say that he was wrong. Up to that point, Salahuddin's life, his career, must be considered a great success. His trajectory, though not without downward turns, had brought him from relative unimportance to the heart of the world stage. Certainly, that's the look one gets tracing it forward from his birth. Going back is another matter, though. We know him to be a giant, a somewhat legendary leader. And that, he had perhaps not yet lived up to. He hadn't lived up to his own dreams, so often proclaimed in writings to Baghdad, of becoming the unifying champion of Islam. For those last important chapters of his life, we're going to have to wait for next episode. If you are listening on the Patreon feed, then please do wait a moment for the bonus section this time on the adventures of Renaud de Chatillon. If you're not, then thank you as always for listening. I'll be back next time with the conclusion of the Salah Adin story, and I'll talk to you then. Human Circus will return. Save big money when you start your next project today at Menards. Convert your current recessed lighting with energy-saving LED downlights from Fight Electric. They're bright and install easily in just minutes. They also go from regular lighting to nightlight mode with just a simple flip of a switch. Save big on all Fight lighting products now at Menards. Shop our lighting options today in-store and on Menards.com. Save big.